Hello, this is Brian Auten of Apologetics 315. Today's interview is with Dr. Jeffrey Brashears. He is a Christian historian, apologist, and the president of the Areopagus, a Christian study center and education ministry in Atlanta, Georgia, that sponsors seminars and forums in Christian history, apologetics, science-related topics, Christian spirituality, literature and the arts, and contemporary cultural issues. He's author of a number of books, including The Absolute Truth About Relativism, The Problem of Christian Anti-Intellectualism, and Natural Law, The Moral Foundation for Social and Political Civility. The purpose of today's interview is to talk about his book, An Introduction to Bibliology, What Every Christian Should Know About the Origins, Composition, Inspiration, Interpretation, Canonicity, and the Transmission of the Bible. Well, thanks for joining me today, Jeffrey. Well, thank you, Brian. It's nice to be with you. Well, as we get started, uh, would you mind telling our listeners a bit about yourself and your background? Oh, uh, certainly. Um, Well, I'm a historian. Uh, For uh, many years, I taught uh, history at Georgia State University, at Kennesaw State University, and uh, also um, Christian history at Reformed Theological Seminary. And uh, in 2003, I left uh, the university and began the ministry uh, that I presently head up called the Areopagus. And the Areopagus is essentially a Christian study center and education ministry. And uh, what we do at the Areopagus, we offer seminars and workshops and forums on uh, uh, quite a variety of uh, topics and issues relevant to contemporary Christian life. Our mission is basically to educate and and equip Christians so that they can effectively engage our society and our culture with uh, the truth and and, uh, transforming love of Jesus Christ. So to that extent, we offer a a systematic curriculum of seminary-level courses for Christians who want to broaden and deepen their understanding of the Christian faith and contemporary culture. We also sponsor a forum series uh, lectures, debates, and presentations, and so on, by outstanding Christian scholars and thinkers, and and so on. Well, excellent. I appreciate your contribution and, and the resources you've generated and your website. Um, I'm curious, what got you interested in the area of history, and then how did that lead to your work in apologetics? Well, uh, growing up in a family that uh, my parents were devout, Christians took their faith very seriously, and my father always had an interest in, in history and current events and so on, and that, that really was a stimulus for me to um, keep up with, with the times. I uh, always had an interest in history, but I think having lived through uh, the very turbulent uh, 1960s, I also wanted to uh, study history in a, in a serious and uh, and um, systematic way so that I could make sense of the 60s and what had happened in American society and Western civilization in general during that period. So in 1980, I uh, went back to graduate school and did a master's and then a a doctorate in the field of history. And I had two primary interests. One was uh, ancient history, philosophy, and religion due to my interest in early Christian history. And the second area of interest and second area of concentration was actually modern American history. So those two areas are oftentimes sort of bookends as you look at uh, the historical scope. 
but I was very uh, keenly interested in both and taught for many years um, both areas of history. Oh, very good. You know, a lot of our listeners are interested in areas surrounding history or philosophy, theology, and of course apologetics. Um, and one thing that we run into, it seems, is um, a sort of anti-intellectualism within the church. And one of your books is called The Problem of Christian Anti-Intellectualism, Why Christians Should Study Apologetics. So, Jeffrey, what is the problem as you have encountered it? Well, I think it's a pervasive problem in our churches, and uh, regretfully so. You know, the great Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan once put it this way. He said that uh, the church should always be more than just a school, but the church should never be less than a school. And I think he was exactly right about that. And, uh, you know, we live in an age in which, uh, certainly in our evangelical churches, uh, Christians are oftentimes encouraged to uh, witness for Christ, share their testimony. But without an apologetics foundation, uh, these days we, we live in such a multicultural, pluralistic society, and it's uh, very difficult to uh, put forth an effective uh, witness for Christ without a foundation in Christian apologetics. So I think it's always been absolutely essential and uh, when I was growing up, uh, especially in high school and college and a few years out of college, uh, our senior pastor at the time was very much involved in apologetics. So from an early age, actually, uh, both due to my family life and also my church life, I developed uh, uh, an awareness and, and a great appreciation for apologetics. And uh, I'm so thankful that uh, God has led me into this area of ministry. Well, what do you think that churches or pastors or thinking Christians can do to combat anti-intellectualism in the church? Well, I think uh, essentially uh, apologetics needs to be integrated into all areas of ministry in our church today instead of relegated to sort of a sideline interest. Oftentimes, I get the impression from some pastors and church leaders that they consider apologetics merely to be sort of a sideline interest for some Christians in their churches who maybe uh, have an unusual amount of curiosity, intellectual curiosity or whatever, but they sort of consider it to be a little bit out of the mainstream of Christian ministry. But I think it needs to be an integral part of every aspect of ministry in our churches today. You know, evangelical churches oftentimes are quite good in terms of teaching theology but in other words uh, those foundational principles and beliefs that all Christians throughout the ages have held to but what many people including many Christians today want to know I think is why these beliefs are credible why we should believe these things and I think that of course you know takes us into the realm of apologetics and I think that's the great value of apologetics. Well, now let's talk about your book, which is an introduction to bibliology. And before we kind of get into it, what is bibliology and why is it so important? Oh, okay. Well, um, that's, uh, that's a good question. And uh, basically, um, bibliology is uh, what you might call the, uh, a systematic study of the Bible in contrast to the common practice of Bible study. And uh, 
Of course, bibliology is based on a knowledge and an understanding of the contents of Scripture, but bibliology concerns itself not so much with uh, exegesis and hermeneutics as with um, the practical application of particular biblical passages and principles. Um, in other words, the development of, a, of an informed and thoughtful and defensible philosophy of the Bible. So basically, bibliology is simply the study of the origins and the composition and the philosophy and the theology of the Bible, including issues related to divine inspiration and hermeneutics and canonicity and issues related to biblical textual criticism and so on. Um, so it's essentially uh, a systematic study of the Bible rather than Bible study as it's typically uh, understood. Uh-huh. Well, can you give our listeners a sort of a brief overview of the book and what topics and issues are included? Uh, yes. Uh, well, the, the purpose of the book was to help Christians develop an informed and a thoughtful and a defensible philosophy of the Bible. So uh, the book is part apologetics, it's part history, and um, it uh, addresses many of the major issues and controversies related to the field of bibliology. Um, I start off with an introduction in which I uh, discuss why the study of the Bible is so important. Also in that section, I, I talk about the link between bibliology and Christian apologetics. And then uh, the first chapter is, what is the Bible? And uh, there I ask the question, uh, if, if asked to define the Bible without using the familiar cliche, the Bible's the Word of God, what would you say? And of course, to call that a cliche doesn't in any it doesn't in any way mean that uh, it's not true. It's just that uh, is there a more descriptive and more helpful way to describe what the Bible is rather than resorting to that uh, phrase? And so, in the chapter, I talk about uh, three basic views of the Bible: the traditional conservative view or the historic view of, of Scripture. Uh, I contrast that with a liberal modernist view. And then also I talk about the neo-Orthodox view that came into vogue in the 20th century. So uh, in that chapter, I discuss what the Bible is. Also, I focus on what the Bible is not and the central message of the Bible and the uniqueness of it. And uh, I close out that chapter with a rather extended um, uh, series of statements of faith from various Protestant denominations and also the Roman Catholic Church um, on their basic views on uh, the Bible. Now, the second chapter deals with the philosophy of the Bible, and the question there would be, does the Bible present a coherent, a consistent, and a comprehensive worldview and philosophy of life? And if so, uh, what would be the basic tenets of a biblical worldview? So that's the topic of the second chapter. Chapter 3 deals with uh, biblical inspiration and the uniqueness of biblical inspiration. In other words, is there a qualitative difference between the kind of inspiration that we encounter in the Bible and the inspiration, for instance, that motivates great writers or speakers or uh, preachers or composers or artists uh, who in, in the production of their works? So why is it reasonable to believe that the Bible has been divinely inspired? The fourth chapter deals with uh, biblical hermeneutics. In other words, what are the basic foundational principles that should guide our interpretation of Scripture? 
And there I look at five basic schools of biblical hermeneutics. One would be the what's popularly known as the historical grammatical method or the contextual method. And I contrast that with a literalistic uh, understanding or interpretation of the Bible, the illuminist view, the allegorical approach, and the modern historical critical method, which is a favorite of, uh, of course, liberal uh, Bible scholars. So what are the differences between various modern translations of the Bible and, and so on? So that, that's all incorporated in the chapter four. The fifth chapter deals with the composition of the Bible in the earliest extant manuscripts. In other words, uh, what are the origins of the Bible and how were the early biblical manuscripts composed and what are our earliest and our best surviving biblical manuscripts? That's a a topic that many Christians, I think, are, are fairly unaware of, but it's a really fascinating area of study. Chapter 6 deals with biblical canonicity. In other words, why were certain books included and excluded from the Bible? Uh, also in that chapter, I deal with the issue of the Apocrypha and why were these books included in the Roman Catholic Bible and various Orthodox Bibles, but why were they excluded from Protestant Bibles? I also delve into issues related to the Septuagint and the origins of the Hebrew canon, and also the historical process of Old and New Testament canonization. It's a very fascinating field of study, again, and uh, it's one of those areas where the deeper you get into it, I think the more interesting it, it becomes. And um, it's, uh, it's an area, I think, that uh, many Christians are, are largely unaware of. Then the last chapter of the book, chapter 7, deals with biblical textual criticism, and this um, is, of course, one of the raging controversies today in biblical studies. Uh, has the Bible been accurately preserved and transmitted through the centuries? Or, you know, when we read the Bible, how can we be confident that what we're reading is what the original authors actually wrote? And uh, what are the arguments that skeptics put forth in their efforts to try and undermine the credibility of the Bible, and how can we defend the integrity of the Bible against these kind of attacks? So in that chapter, I provide a brief history of biblical textual criticism and also the methodology of biblical textual criticism. So uh, the book uh, is seven chapters and also an introduction, and I think it pretty thoroughly covers the basics when it comes to uh, the field of bibliology. Well, very good. Uh, I want to ask you various questions that seem to be um, common when it comes to understanding the Bible. Some Christian apologists, for instance, they might be well-educated enough to answer those who ask when it comes to you know the historicity of the Bible, but they may not be equipped to defend, say, the inspiration. For instance, a skeptic might say, Sure, it's okay, it's historically reliable, but that doesn't mean it's inspired. Or they might argue that you mm -hmm. can't say that the Bible is the Word of God because the Bible tells me so. So how do you go about right. responding to those sorts of questions uh, related to the inspiration of the Bible? Yes, I think that's a real key uh, question, and uh, one that uh, hopefully more Christians will become adept at, at um, being able to deal with. Um, in the chapter on inspiration, I basically um, put forth what I call three bad arguments for defending 
the Bible. And by bad, I don't mean necessarily these arguments are erroneous or fallacious. What I mean is that they're bad in the sense that they're very unconvincing arguments. And one would be uh, the argument from authority. Basically, uh, I believe the Bible's divinely inspired and authoritative because, after all, that's what my pastor or my church or my denomination teaches. And, and of course, I try to emphasize in that section that what matters are the factual and the rational reasons for believing in the supernatural inspiration of the Bible, not who or what authority claims that the Bible is, uh, is uh, authoritative. And um, so the, the argument from authority. Now, a second argument, which uh, some Christians uh, often put forth, is what I would call the spiritual argument, and, and that is uh, using um, arguments such as, I, I know the Bible's true because, after all, I feel it in my heart, or I know the Bible's true and is the Word of God because it uh, changed my life. And, um, of course, I, I make the point in that section that uh, there are advocates of other religions and spiritual paths who will try to argue the same thing about their uh, spiritual and, and religious texts, and it's a, a very, very unconvincing uh, argument because it's purely subjective. Now, it may be true that the Bible has changed your life, or at least God has used uh, Scripture to change your life very dramatically, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it comes across as purely opinion and subjective. A third um, weak argument for belief in the Bible would be what I call the self-referential argument, and that is that um, the Bible's true, it, the Bible must be true, because after all, it says it is. And I point out that, of course, there are other texts that make similar claims, including, for instance, the Quran. Now, um, I proceed to follow with five what I consider to be good arguments for believing that the Bible has been uh, divinely inspired. And I begin with the argument that the Bible's historically reliable, um, and, of course, um, these, these five arguments that I put forth are all sort of predicated on what we call an apologetics, a cumulative case argument. No one of these five arguments necessarily would be conclusive, but I think collectively they provide a very solid defense for why we can accept that the Bible was supernaturally inspired. So the first is uh, the historical reliability of the Bible. No book, of course, has ever been more scrutinized or critiqued than the Bible, and yet it holds up very well as an accurate source for historical information. Now, of course, historical accuracy doesn't necessarily prove that the Bible's divinely inspired, but if the Bible were divinely inspired, we would expect it to be historically reliable, and that's, of course, what we, what we find. Also, of course, the arguments can be put forth uh, from archaeology in support of the uh, basic facticity of the Bible as well. Now, the second good argument that I think Christians can, can put forth is uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, the theologian George Ladd once wrote that the uniqueness of the Christian religion rests on the mediation of revelation through historical events, and Christianity is different from other religions in that the unique truth claims of the Christian faith are actually testable. In other words, they're subject to falsifiability. And, of course, we oftentimes emphasize this in our apologetics, the fact that the resurrection is the very linchpin that holds the Christian faith together. And uh, obviously there have been um, 
numerous uh, attempts by skeptics to come up with alternatives to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but all these naturalistic attempts to explain away the resurrection all fail. And so uh, essentially the only sensible and plausible explanation is that God raised Jesus from the dead and thereby uh, validated Jesus's life and ministry. A third argument that I put forth in the chapter in defense of the supernatural inspiration of the Bible is that the Bible sets forth a consistent and a progressive theme. Uh, This is a book that was written over 1,500 years by about 40 authors, and yet from the beginning to the end, the Bible is quite consistent when it, in terms of its treatment of ultimate reality, in other words, the character and nature of God, uh, the condition of mankind, uh, it sets forth a very realistic appraisal of human nature, including uh, our fundamental problem of sin. It also sets forth the solution to mankind's problem as well. And uh, so this is uh, an argument that oftentimes is sort of overlooked a book composed, actually a a collection of books composed over a millennium and a half, and yet what we find throughout is this consistent and yet also progressive theme. Now, fourthly, the uh, Bible sets forth a rational and a positive worldview. And when you look at the worldview of the Bible, uh, it's it's quite uh, quite impressive in the fact that it's coherent throughout, it's consistent, and it's comprehensive. And uh, again, this is one of the defenses of the Bible that oftentimes is sort of overlooked by Christians, but uh, is is a very notable uh, point that I think needs to be emphasized. And then fifthly is the issue of fulfilled biblical prophecy. And in this respect, of course, the Bible is unique. No other religious writings include the kind of futuristic prophecies that we find in the Bible. Now, I also, by the way, in that chapter, uh, talk about some of the problems associated with biblical prophecy. In other words, um, if we look at the historical context for many of these uh, attributions uh, of fulfilled prophecy, what we find is that they related to specific people or events in Old Testament history, not necessarily to a coming Messiah. And I think that's an issue on which uh, Christians need to be very clear so that we can um, make a strong case that Jesus was, in fact, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. But skeptics will oftentimes uh, bring forth uh, this argument, and that is that many of those references that we make were actually fulfilled historically centuries before Christ. So another popular question from both skeptics and Christians is how the books got into the Bible in the first place, the question of canon. Uh, so what allowed some books to make the cut and others to be, say, left out? Well, that's, that's a question that uh, oftentimes comes up, and it's, it's a, um, an issue that, again, I think Christians need to be pretty, pretty well um, prepared to deal with. And uh, it certainly hasn't helped when books like uh, Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code and and others that, of course, more scholarly uh, try to make the case that the books that um, eventually were canonized were done um, either in a very haphazard fashion or else they were imposed on the church by certain councils of bishops. 
And I think that that uh, seriously distorts the reality of the situation. Now, there were certain criteria for inclusion that uh, certainly uh, in the first century or so of the Christian movement became pretty much normative and standard when it came to whether or not a, a particular book should be accorded um, canonical status. And uh, probably the primary criterion was apostolicity. In other words, was the book written by an apostle or a close associate of the apostles? And in most cases, this was rather clear and evident, but uh, frankly, it took, uh, took a while and took uh, quite a lot of debate before a few of the books of the New Testament were finally uh, generally uh, accepted as being of apostolic uh, origin. Now, a second criterion, of course, was the issue of orthodoxy, and that is whether a particular book uh, conformed to what uh, was generally regarded as the rule of faith. In other words, the generally accepted core doctrines of the Christian faith as articulated by Jesus and as uh, propagated by the apostles. Um, now, the, the New Testament, of course, we understand is not a treatise on systematic theology, but there are consistent theological themes that are recurrent in these writings. And so the issue of, of uh, theological orthodoxy was a major consideration. Uh, thirdly, was the issue of Catholicity. In other words, um, the issue of acceptance uh, was a particular book generally received over time by most of the apostolic churches as being authentic and authoritative. And uh, did the book prove itself to be inspirational and edifying and instructional over time? So those three criteria were applied, and like I said, the issue of canonization was actually a, a rather prolonged uh, process. Um, it was uh, very deliberative. It was sometimes contentious. And actually, uh, the issue of canonicity was really not finalized until the late 3rd or the 4th centuries, but eventually, I think under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, uh, the books that uh, should have been included were, and any others, were relegated to a secondary status. Well, when speaking with the skeptic, you'll often hear the claim that the Bible was put together a bit like the telephone game. Uh, translation after translation over time, and there's no way we have what was originally written. So how do we approach that concern? Well, that's the issue that uh, in scholarly circles is referred to as biblical textual criticism. Now, that term criticism, of course, generally carries a negative connotation. So I think when conveying this to Christians uh, in our churches and to non-Christians, uh, we need to be clear that when we refer to biblical textual criticism, we're essentially talking about biblical textual analysis. And what we mean by that is that um, uh, th this is essentially the, the art and the science of comparing variant readings in the biblical manuscripts so that we can restore as closely as possible the original wording in the original text and uh, as I said, this is both an art and a science, but there are very well-formulated criteria by which we can, we can apply those standards. Now, um, biblical textual criticism is 
certainly tedious and it's a rather complex process, but it's absolutely essential for at least a couple of reasons, one of which is that none of the original biblical documents, of course, is extant. Uh, None of the original documents have survived through the centuries. And then secondly, uh, the existing copies that we do have all contain variant readings. But uh, nonetheless, uh, through a careful study of the manuscripts that have survived, and we have uh, hundreds, if not in some cases thousands, of manuscripts by which we can compare and contrast the readings, we can restore within a very high degree of accuracy what the original text actually said. Now, it's interesting that even some of the foremost skeptics when it comes to biblical textual criticism, such as Bart Ehrman, for instance, will generally concede that the Bible that we have today corresponds very, very closely to what was originally written. So if the most militant skeptics will concede that, I think Christians are uh, should, Christians should rest uh, you know, uh, content that, in fact, the Bible that we read today does conform very closely to what was originally written. All right, Jeffrey, uh, you mentioned there all the different copies and manuscripts, um, but as we've heard from, say, Bart Ehrman and, and other sources, you know, there are a lot of variants, and, uh, you know, how, you know, if you've got all these different, uh, one manuscript has this reading, another manuscript has that reading, how, how does that affect our approach to the scripture, and, and is that a threat to its historicity in any way? Well, I don't really believe it is a threat in any serious regard. Now, the overwhelming majority of these variants in our ancient texts are absolutely insignificant. In fact, uh, scholars such as Daniel uh, Wallace of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts in Dallas, uh, Texas, um, has pointed out uh, that only a very small percent uh, are in any way meaningful, and in fact, none of these variant readings in any way uh, affects our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Uh, none of them affect any fundamental Christian doctrine, and so I think the the point needs to be emphasized, and that is that uh, certain things matter a great deal, other things matter virtually not at all. And when it comes to the issue of biblical textual criticism and uh, variant readings in in our ancient documents, what matters is how significant are these variants, how significant are these changes, and do they alter in any way our understanding of Christ, or do they affect any fundamental Christian doctrine? And um, my contention in the book is that uh, these are not significant, uh, nor do they in any way necessitate any kind of reevaluation of any traditional core teaching that true Christians have held throughout church history. Well, very good. Now, sometimes uh, skeptics will try to spend all their time trying to point out apparent contradictions. And from what you've been saying, you know, the, the core there is, is Christ, uh, his histor- the historical record of his life, death, and resurrection, and uh, the strength cumulatively of the scriptures as a whole. How do you approach skeptics if they want to follow every little bunny trail of apparent contradictions and different readings and that sort of thing? 
Well, I think uh, how I would address that is essentially the, the same way that I um, talked about the, the previous question, and, and that is that certain things really do not matter at all. Other things matter a great deal, and so uh, it really brings us back to the point, and that is um, how significant would these uh, supposed contradictions be? I'm, I'm not sure that there are contradictions throughout Scripture, but, but even if we conceded that point, uh, they would be um, of a very minor nature, and do they, in fact, alter in any way our understanding of uh, Jesus Christ? Do they in any way affect any fundamental uh, core Christian doctrine? And the answer is absolutely not. And now when it comes to what every Christian should know about the Bible, what do you think might be the most misunderstood or overlooked? How could that be corrected? I think when it uh, comes to that uh, question in particular, um, I would take them back to the to the chapter in the book on uh, divine inspiration of Scripture, uh, which is um, chapter three. And uh, again, uh, is there a, a qualitative difference between the kind of inspiration that we encounter in the Bible and the inspiration, for instance, that uh, motivates great writers, authors, speakers, artists, and, and so on. Um, this is, uh, I think, a very, very key aspect of the book, and that is um, uh, really emphasizing the uniqueness of biblical inspiration. And, and in that respect, I, uh, in the chapter, focus on um, issues related to uh, divine revelation of Scripture, and I draw a distinction and a contrast between uh, that and the kind of uh, inspiration or illumination, you might say, that uh, inspires us uh, in our everyday life. So I think uh, having a clear understanding of that distinction would be at least one of the key aspects of the, of the book and uh, one of the key aspects of bibliology in, in general. All right, well, thanks, Jeffrey. We've been talking about in your book An Introduction to Bibliology, and if people want to find more good apologetics resources from yourself and, and your organization, can you point them to the Areopagus online and what resources they would find there? Uh, yes, we have a website, of course. It's www.thearepagus.org. Of course, the uh, term Areopagus in Christian history um, has um, represented basically the intersection of Christian faith and culture. Uh, and in Acts chapter 17, it was, of course, when Paul first visited Athens, uh, his audience, uh, primarily philosophers and, and thinkers, took him to the Areopagus, where um, that, that serviced as basically a forum for debate. And so that's where the term comes from. Now, on our website, we, we have, of course, um, a lot of resources for follow-up. We also have our uh, course catalog that people can access on the uh, on the website, and we provide a, a very broad and I think rather um, in-depth uh, curriculum in uh, terms of courses related to biblical studies and apologetics and contemporary cultural issues, science-related issues, and so on. So 
we um, try not to uh, clutter the website with with a, a lot of uh, resources, but we try to be as selective as possible. But uh, I think people would find a lot there that would be helpful in terms of uh, continuing their studies in these areas. Well, very good. We'll be pointing our listeners to the areopagus.org on the website today, as well as your book, An Introduction to Bibliology. Jeffrey, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much for doing the interview. Well, thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate it very much, and I appreciate very much the, the great work that you've done over the years. I've been speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Brashears, Christian historian, apologist, and the president of the Areopagus, and author of An Introduction to Bibliology. Find links to Jeffrey's resources and book at today's blog post at apologetics315.com. If you've enjoyed the interview, please share it with a friend via Facebook or Twitter. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash apologetics315 and on Twitter at apologetics315. Please help us get the word out about good apologetics resources. I want to remind those who'd like to support Apologetics 315 that you can do so by using our Amazon affiliate links located at the right-hand side of apologetics315.com. When you do your normal shopping from Amazon, using those links allows a small portion of your purchase to support what we're doing, and it only costs you a click. Those links can also be bookmarked for ease of use whenever you shop online. We continue to transcribe these interviews with the help of volunteer transcribers, and if you'd like to help with more, just email me at interviews at apologetics315.com. And if you have suggestions for the interviews, you can email me there as well. This is Brian Auten, and thanks again for listening.